there just wasn't really anything that was truly holding me back from feeling like this is something that I could do to help other people feel more comfortable. And welcome to episode 18 of the Outfield Podcast. It's good to be back after a bit of a layoff, and I apologize for that. And we have a great story to talk with you about today. Uh, A kindred spirit of mine, openly bisexual journalist who covers soccer. Seems like something that would be up my street. Very on brand for me. Uh, Jeff Roeder of The Athletic. It is great to have you on, Jeff. Uh, you're openly bisexual now, publicly, for a couple of weeks. Uh, now, what's your last few couple of weeks been like? Uh, I, I suppose you could say not normal, right? I, I think that when, when you're a journalist in 2020, I think you're just kind of used to accepting that there's no such thing as a usual week, so why not try to throw something like Correct. coming Correct. out publicly that, into the mix as well? Um, yeah, I mean, like, look, it's been it, it, it's been an overwhelmingly positive reaction. Uh, I'm incredibly fortunate and thankful uh, to, I mean, whether it's people on Twitter, the athletics readers, uh, people who are kind of tangential, my immediate family and my friends all knew already. But for, for people who are learning right now, it has been overwhelmingly positive. Of course, as I'm sure you've noticed, there, there are still some uh, less than positive interactions that come with this. And I've certainly had my fair share already. But, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty easy to tune those out. It's, I don't know, it's not worth the energy necessarily to dwell too much on uh, people who aren't necessarily uh, of a welcoming type, we'll say, Um to people who aren't exactly like themselves. So it, it's been interesting, certainly covering the, the Colin Martin story and the, the homophobic slur that was issued toward him by a Phoenix Rising player uh, has been oddly prescient with its timing. But uh, yeah, I, I think overall it's, again, it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience for me coming out as a sports writer. Yeah, it's a universally uh, beloved thing. When I came out, I had that same feeling. It was just, you heard a little bit of the negatives here and there, but more often than not, it's positive. And you hear from people you never expect, which is always fun. So for people who don't know about you and who you are, you are a writer for The Athletic. You cover a lot of U.S. soccer. Give people a little bit more about you uh, before we move on to more of your story. Sure, yeah. I, I was uh, based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I, I cover, like you said, professional soccer for Major League Soccer level and the United Soccer League, which is the second and third division of U.S. soccer. Um I mean, the, the intention was always to write about soccer. It wasn't necessarily like a, a beat that I was dropped into by a publication or something and just stuck. Uh, it, it really was working towards entering the field of journalism, specifically as someone writing about soccer. So it's been a very, I suppose, unique specialist sort of journey for me professionally. Um, personally, I mean, like you said, I, I came out a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, I've been out to my family and my friends since 2012. Uh, there was never a moment in my life where I was, you know, under any sort of disillusion or whatever that I was a different orientation than I am now. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, overall, I've got a wife and a greyhound, and I, I'm keeping an eye on Winston the greyhound right now. Uh, I think that he's settled in now for the next 30 to 60 minutes, however long you need here. So I should be good. Uh, knock on wood, Matt. Ah, to, to do this without any sort of jingles going on in the background. Uh, that's what the editing is for. Audacity that's is a right. great that's product right. with editing, and I, I've gotten used to it. I've had much more worse things to edit out than a dog barking in the background, I can assure you. Uh, but just for you on your own personal journey, uh, talk a little bit about growing up for you. You grew up outside of uh, Minneapolis in St. Paul, so you've been there your entire life. And you said you've had come out to family, and it was about eight years ago you did. 
Uh, talk about your own personal journey and understanding your sexuality and coming to understand what being bisexual means. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, so I grew up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is the kind of town that you really never hear in a terribly glowing, open connotation. It, it, it does have something of a reputation for being a pretty close-minded place to live. Um, for example, I mean, I was, I was in a, a lift uh, covering a sports event in a different city, and my driver was just asking the, the sort of usual, what can I say to get an extra 50 cents on my tip or whatever, let me just talk about their hometown. Uh, I said, I'm from St. Cloud. They're from a totally different part of the country. And they said, hey, didn't I just read about that in the New York Times? And of course, it was about uh, <laughs> stories of hatred that go on in St. Cloud. But I, my experience, I mean, I was raised uh, in a Catholic household. I am not practicing. But I, I mean, a lot of what I experienced growing up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, uh, was sort of a, a curiosity and a questioning, but not necessarily in a way of like, why are people so close-minded about things, but it was more about what are they close-minded about and really diving in and educating myself much more on, uh, I mean, there's a, a major Somali refugee population in St. Cloud. So spending time at the Somali cafe and uh, talking with people who have been transplanted here and learning more about, you know, what atrocities they escaped and about their food and their culture and all that stuff. And I was already doing that at 14 years old. Um, I was, I was part Boy, of- No uh, shock you ended up as a journalist there. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it, I mean, that was really backroads too, to be honest. I mean, I didn't go to J school or anything, but I, I think for me and my, if, if we're purely talking about me in my bisexuality, I, I think that I didn't realize that like boys were supposed to have crushes on girls and girls were supposed to have crushes on boys. I think that that was something that was actually like verbatim told to me at some point when I was like 12 or 13 years old, that like, there's a difference between your buddies and your crushes. And I, I didn't really ever equate that sort of a difference. It was just like, I have a fondness towards this person. I have a fondness towards this person. I'm 12 years old. I'm not going to act on it, right? So it, I, I think that it was certainly a weird education. There was certainly something strange about going through religious courses, for example, in high school and hearing all of these things about, I mean, you know, the exact, <laughs> the exact rhetoric that they'll use. Um, and, and sitting in this sort of liminal space where... Uh, I, I didn't identify as gay. I, I don't think that there was ever a point in my life where I did, but I also know that there wasn't a point in my life where I identified as straight either. Um, so it, it was, that was certainly something to negotiate some feelings to try to figure out. Um, like you said, eight years ago now, October 2012, it was the 13th of October, I, I came out to my parents and had already come out to some of my friends and I had come out to my, my siblings beforehand and let them know this conversation would happen. And I was incredibly fortunate to be met with a very positive, loving reaction. Um, you know, just a, you're, you're the same person. And also we don't ask about uh, your siblings' sex life. So it's not like we'd ask about yours anyway. So I, you know, it's almost the best case sort of um, scenario as far as uh, what I could have hoped for. And I have a fantastic relationship with everyone in my family at this point as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it, as far as, you know, getting through the, the sports writing phase, I, I mean, I I've covered Minnesota United closely since 2015. Colin Martin used to play for Minnesota United. He came out as gay when he was playing for Minnesota United. So there was a lot of time spent with him, a lot of conversations that we've had. He's known, uh, that I'm bisexual for a couple of years now, just again, conversations that we would have completely unrelated to covering games. But uh, I mean, it's it's been not a confusing process for me. I think some of the confusion is much more about 
learning the the sort of stigmas and stereotypes that people outside of the queer community and within the queer community, to be fair, might have about being bisexual and, and trying to figure out how they possibly got to those places. But that's really it. Yes, I want to talk about that because when you came out, you posted a lot of stuff that is just – it's awesome to see because it's something – obviously, it's going to sing to me personally. But I, I personally, when I think about being bisexual, I think of a society that's very black and white. So people understand the L. They understand right. the G because that's black and white. You're only attracted to one, and you obviously people understand when you're straight. But they don't understand that you could be attracted to both or right. things that are fluid in the middle which is why we have all of these things that happen to the transgender community, which is horrible because we don't understand that things can be fluid and there's a spectrum. And sexuality is definitely on there. And I feel it because, you know, and particularly you, you feel it because you're married to a woman and that adds a whole other kettle of fish to a discussion about bisexuality. And again, it, of course, it doesn't right. remove any validity from that. But it, it, I'm trying to figure out the words I want to say here because... I, no, you're going down a right avenue. I think I kind of know where you're you're driving through, and it's like, I mean, my wife is also bisexual, which so makes it, it easier for you, obviously, and that's great, and that's fantastic. I mean, for sure, but I, I think it also like kind of challenged me, just in a sense of like not like you said, not about the validity of it, but it was more about the why am I doing this publicly, right? Because I am like at this point now established at a national publication. I've been a staff writer at the Athletic for a year and a half, and I've been writing regularly for the Athletic for two and a half years in total. Um, so it's a sense where it's like, I mean, it, that was one of the few sort of like negative things that was lobbed at me from anonymous accounts on Twitter was like, why are you doing this when you're married to a woman? And it's like, I get from some, somebody who's not, I get the visibility point. I get the point where it's like, I could have lived my entire life married to Kate and people would see it and just be like, oh, they're hetero. Right. But it, it just didn't, one, it didn't feel authentic. Two, I'm in such a comfortable position right now with who I am, most importantly, within my marriage, second most importantly, equally important, if you think about it, and then within my career, third of those three, where it's like there just wasn't really anything that was truly holding me back from feeling like this is something that I could do to help other people feel more comfortable. So... It, it really is something where I, you know, I've gotten messages from people who say I identify I'm not public, but I, I feel much more confident in who I am because you came out and those are fantastic to hear. And that's the entire reason I did it. Right. But I, I think that for my wife, who is also bisexual and who has been pretty vocal or much more vocal for a little bit longer on social media about the issues um, regarding representation visibility of bisexual people between like you said the polarity of how people view this how it's not the whole kinsey scale but people see it as like a, a yes no box that you're checking that sort of thing it, it's really trying to break that and make people think about like i don't know it, i've been a, i've been a pretty normal part of a surprising number of people's like weeks in terms of like reading my content listening to me on podcasts scrolling through my tweets stuff like that and they've gotten to know me in a weird way, and I, I do feel fortunate, and I think The Athletic as a whole feels that our, we have a, a pretty unique relationship with our readers and with how – maybe it's the subscription model. I don't know. But they, they sort of get an investment, and we want to in turn make sure that like we engage with them, whether it's Q&As on the website, whether it's responding to them in tweets, whether it's talking with them at bars when you can go out in, in public. What a novel well, idea that is. We can't really do that right now. We're recording this in October of 2020. So if you're listening to this in the year, it might sound dumb, but, you know, 
I hope it does. Oh, I hope I it hope sounds so dumb too. in I'm here. Getting, right? I'm getting, a little, <laughs> I'm getting a little sick of it, you know. I'm getting a little sick of this. But, I mean, I'm watching a Monday night football game that's on CBS that was just postponed a day because of COVID tests. That's right, I'm yeah. watching Andy Reid in a face shield. It's never going to not look weird to me. But, no. I mean, but the, the thing about the, the, the connection with readers and the connection with the people who, in my case, it's broadcasting too. You know, I, I did a USL League One game last year, and it happened to be a pride night. For, mm-hmm. It was Richmond in North Texas, and I and it just happened to be that, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I didn't mention it during the game, but if you follow me on Twitter, you know it's not a secret. And I just wanted to come out because I said, like, I couldn't live with not having the ability to be public about this anymore because it was just getting tiring. You know, it's like I want to be able to make the joke with a friend or on Twitter about a hot guy if I want to and not have people go, what the hell is this? You know sure. what I mean? And I think, yeah. and, and now that opens it up for you too, and, and it, it just it frees you up a little bit. Even if it didn't, if you didn't think when you were going to come out that you were all that free from things that were going on, and even in your own head, you didn't even notice. And I could just feel after I came out and I posted on my birthday, wrote an out sports piece, turned my phone off. I just, and when I turned my phone back on, my shoulders dropped a little bit. It just felt okay. Now this is the new normal for the rest of my life, and everybody knows. I'm pretty public about it. It's not going to be hard to find. There's nothing to hide anymore. And also, when I'm trying to find jobs, I can't go in saying I'm one thing and then be something else entirely. I think that's dishonest. And I don't want to be dishonest as I try to find a job in an industry where honesty is the most important thing. It really is. No, it, it absolutely is. And it's it's something where it, it's not even just as much about being able to validate that, you know, because I, I think that there's something inherently within our industry, I think that there's something, especially in the United States, that seems very concentrated to covering sports in the United States compared to other countries, where people assume that you're going to be objective to everything that you cover. And people assume, like, for example, I don't cheer for any soccer teams in North America. I don't have, uh, especially the United States, I don't have a favorite team, right? Like I'll cheer for AFC Bournemouth who just got relegated and I'm still following them in the championship, which means I'm listening to radio streams instead of watching them on TV because they're never on TV. But like I couldn't, it felt pretty obvious that I couldn't be a fan of Minnesota United when they went to Major League Soccer. Whereas if you watch in, and, and this again, this is purely like just using a, a kind of similar viewpoint of how people look at the media and sports media in particular, when you look at, uh, let, let's say you're, you're watching coverage in England and you're looking at the Athletic UK, great example. Like they're they're fantastic writers. They, they're very good at what they do, but most of them are fans of the team that they support And the readers aren't like, oh, of course you would say this. Of course you would be cheering for this player, this coach, or of course you would be negative about this component because you're a fan. They're saying, great, now we can talk about it together. And I feel like you understand my club and you're not just kind of window watching us and like sneering at us from afar. Well, actually, you don't care about the team. It's a very different sort of dynamic. So then when I'm talking about what happened to Colin Martin or just talking about Colin Martin and how important it is that he is still playing and that he is playing regularly for San Diego now. Or if I'm talking about why the Supreme court gives me anxiety, I can talk about this because it is something that people know is important to me and my livelihood instead of them just saying, okay, well it's as they assume beforehand, a straight white guy who is trying to score points on social media or something, you know? I think that, we're talking about diversity in newsrooms. Maybe this is a little too inside baseball talking about journalism and broadcasting and representation. And, you know, this has been an industry, particularly sports, I mean, it's dominated by straight white men. And so I think we have to be honest 
with ourselves and be honest that if we want to push this industry in a better direction, whether you're writing or whether you're in front of a camera, and I've, I've done both, right. you know, we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to be honest with the people that are consuming us and saying this is who we are and this is what matters to us. And we try to be objective, right? But when you're covering a story like Colin Martin, it's it's hard to be objective because how would you react if you were called something like that on the street? It, you know, I, I think people have to understand like a lived experience, I think, is something that really helps us be better at our jobs because you can tell that Colin Martin story a little bit better now because you live it and you understand it. Right. As opposed to a straight writer. It's not that he doesn't sympathize or understand what the problems are, but there's that little lived experience that I mean. And Colin Martin might say something different to you, and we're going to talk more about this story later, uh, than he would to somebody else because he knows you and he knows your experiences. And it's that, that little kinship that makes telling those stories a little bit easier. I don't know. Right. Maybe, maybe you found that. Did you find that? I mean, having covered that specifically? And I mean, yeah. I found that doing this particular podcast, it's made me you know, better at telling these stories as I've gone along. And it's just that empathy. It makes it a little bit easier once you have that lived experience. Right. And I think it's just an inherent, I mean, a, a lot of what comes with people needing to trust us isn't just that they're going to trust that we won't, you know, live into this whole, like, quote unquote, fake news era. But it's just as much about like them trusting that we're not going to misrepresent their story. And I think that having known Colin now for, again, three, four years, whatever, like, Colin isn't somebody who wants, like, this huge spotlight around him. He's not doing any of this for attention. It's it's not his nature. Nor is he somebody who would be doing this to try to like cancel the haters or whatever, or like try to play into this sort of cancel culture accusation. Like for him, it's education. For him, it's normalization, it's representation, it's all of these Asians, whatever, that try to move society forward in a very selfless way. And I that that is how I would describe what Colin Martin does. And I think that Moving forward, that, that's a lot of what I want to do as well. It's, it's helping, like, break these sort of assumptions that are dated or that are just incorrect, regardless of how long they've been around. And 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 if nothing else, I mean, like, for me, with I, I have, I, I don't know the exact number, but I have, I have something over 10,000, 11,000 Twitter followers. Like, for them, like, if they didn't know somebody who is bisexual before, they do now. And even if they don't know me personally, even if they'll never interact with me in person, like, they are they have chosen to have my mug show up with my thoughts on their timeline for free and they read through these or they don't read through these but for some reason they've decided to kind of like click that button on me and now that person is somebody on their timeline who is bisexual and not everything i tweet is going to be like a bisexual thought right like no matter how you want to take that it's not like when i'm tweeting about uh mls standings like it is not that i have a view that's representative of bisexuals nor is it that the view that i have is because i am bisexual but it normalizes it enough where they say like oh yeah he tweets about soccer like every other writer he is bisexual um i know more about his story i feel like i know more about the culture and that's important and that sort of representation is like like you said that is how you start changing not just an industry but that's how you start changing perspectives across the broader society i do not have as many followers on you on, uh, as on twitter that would be about ten thousand less give or take uh, and my mug is not on Twitter. It is a picture of Eric Idle from um, one of my favorite shows, The Flying Circus. But you know, when people follow me on Twitter, and I have people who are LGBT followers, and obviously I tweet about it a lot. I've retweeted a lot of your work and other work on 
color, but not just that, but every like big coming out story and my own podcast, of course, because this is something that I'm passionate about. But then you'll see me on Sunday yelling about the Jaguars because that's what I do. Or you'll see right. me on Sunday yelling about Tottenham, which is what I do. Or, and, and you know, like people say like, I, I think just the normalization of like, this is just a dude who likes sports. You know, he's one of the guys, which is a phrase I don't like, but it, it works in this case. And like, yeah, like one of the guys can be this different person who has these different lived experiences, but you can bond and connect over this common love of whatever it is you're following. If somebody's following me because they like my takes on the Jaguars, then great. Or do you like me on this podcast? Whatever the heck it may be. You know, right. And I, I don't mean, think you get those experiences, particularly because sports is such a, you know, closed off world in many regards. Yeah, and I think that's something where a couple of months ago I was interviewing the lead singer of one of my favorite bands, Los Campesinos, and and his name's Gareth David. And Gareth was talking about how I was interviewing him because he also is like the the guy who runs the day-to-day operations of like a ninth division English club. And so like we were talking about non-league football in the age of COVID, and we were talking about his band and how they're up, they have an upcoming seventh album that they've been working on, but it's very hard to work on recording music, if you believe it, when there's a pandemic going on. Oh, I so, do. I mean, you know, kind of droplets and microphones and stuff. Yeah, I can believe that. Right, right. And in general, you just don't find the same sort of day-to-day motivation or inspiration in your life when you're sitting at home and you're you're being safe and smart about it all. So we, we were talking about that, but I, I mean, one thing is that his band is kind of perceived as a queer band because they're so vague about whenever they sing about like relationships or whatever, they're not using a lot of gendered language about it. It's very you, like it's more directed to the person instead of about the person is kind of how it goes. And yeah, they have songs like songs I've written about your girlfriend, but it's not the norm. And so for him, he also talks about how He's, he's in this weird sort of space as an artist slash sporting figure and how in general sports is seen, like you said, with all these sort of like masculine stereotypes or like, um, you know, it's, it's one of the boys or whatever, right? This boys, boys club sort of mentalities. But as a singer and as an artist, there, there's something where those two worlds between the sporting and the artist don't tend to meet. Why is that? Because I think that a lot of people will assume one with one identity and one with another identity. And for him, he's like, that's just so dated and such bullshit. People are complex. People have interests across the whole range of possible topics, right? Like it, you're not going to just pigeonhole every single person off of either their orientation or their gender or any combination of these sorts of identities uh, into liking specific things. It's like the whole thing of like paint the room blue if it's a boy, paint the room pink if it's a girl, or give them Barbies or give them Legos, all that sort of stuff. Like we need to move past that. And and I wish that I could say that we have moved past that as a society, but I haven't seen that. Um, uh, no, we haven't. We haven't. I mean, right. when I, I, I tweeted like about what was the Colin Martin story, I'm like, is this going to cause a change in soccer? And I'm being sarcastic, man. I'm like, no, probably not. And I've, I've seen it because I've interviewed enough people on the show who have gone through, you know, pretty terrible experiences to say, yeah, we got a long way to go. But I also think that it's important for this in sports right now, right? We're in a moment in sports where there is more, the athletes have more control over their own message and they're speaking out more. We're in that unique moment in time, particularly with the bubbles and all that we saw with what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis and then Jacob Blake. And we see this activism I don't know if that's the right word, but we see that these athletes are taking a stand. We're seeing talk about mental health much more than we have ever seen, which is good. We need to have that discussion. And inevitably, athletes are going to talk about their sexuality. And some of the most popular athletes in this country right now are U.S. women's soccer players who are out and nobody bats an eye. That's a different 
obviously thing entirely because of the difference mm. between out women and out men. And you work without people at the athletic covering soccer. And again, there, there's so many differences and I would love to get into that on another show one day. But also, as I say, like, again, we have to be honest with the subjects that we cover. We need to be honest with the people who are consuming us. And if we want to tell these stories and help change the culture of sports away from what it was and what it still is to what we hope it can be, so there are more Colin Martins in the world, we have this ability now to amplify and help by being ourselves more authentically. Because journalists, you know, you'd go, you'd cover the game, you'd give your story, and that's it. And the personality was saved for the columnist, you know, right? And now our big sports right. talk shows is not the sports reporters, it's, you know, Stephen A. Smith yelling at clouds. So there's right. an evolution in that. And I mean, and it helps because, like, for me, it means I'm a little bit more confident. And I'm pretty self-confident to begin with. But seeing somebody like me who's out there, and you, personally, it just means, like, okay, I know that this is going to be e – not my job is going to be easier to do because you're doing your job really well. So it means people can draw that line, right? And sure, I think that's yeah. going to help yeah. a lot of people who are going to follow you and me. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just in general it's like – if you if you see someone like you out there, it's it's huge, right? And it's like you you just whether it's a confidence thing or it's a self assurance thing, which is like just next door to confidence, or if it's something about like knowing that you can be a sports writer and you'll be fine if you're not a straight. Well, also, much just being man. in sports. Because right. when I'm growing up, I don't see anybody like me. You know, I would present as masculine or what society thinks is masculine. I like sports. Nobody would know I would I like men if I told if you if you didn't figure it out, you know, because sure. we have those stereotypes. And you obviously I think you fall into a similar bucket. So that also you know, like we, we, we are not necessarily how we present and what society perceives us. And that also, again, we can change perceptions in that way because there's all so many elements of, you know, blurring personality and sexuality and all these things. And, and of course, there's also just being bisexual is important because, again, we got the L, we got the G, but the other stuff we're not quite as good on yet, especially in this in this community. And the thing you posted about, um, I, will, I have to go find that graphic about bisexual men who are married or whatever it was. And I was just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen tweeted because it because it sings to so many people in it. You know, you understand now a little bit more about what being bisexual means, right? And the, and the things you have to deal with and the things that society expects of you, now that you're out, like, people are trying to understand bisexuality in many ways. They're trying to work through it as they see it because they haven't seen many people in this position before. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's that education component that's so important, man. I mean, it's just like... Like with that post, it's 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 in accrediting someone else, right? Like I didn't, I'm not good enough of an artist to make infographics, I promise. But like, to to be able to put things out where it's like it's not a confusion thing, you know? It, it's not like you said, it's not like you are open to more options until you find your person who, if you decide you're gonna have a life partner, right? Which I have, like, and I'm very thankful for Kate. <laughs> but like, if it's not that suddenly it's like, well, I've tapped out of the community and, and now I'm, we are going to identify as two straight people. It's no, we're two bisexual people who are in a marriage together. Um, and that's fine. And that doesn't change anything about who we are, except for like putting a little extra weight on our left hands. So it's, it's, it's something about just that education. It's the visibility part of it. It's, it's me like 
I don't want it to go away, right? Like I had to unpin my announcement tweet within a week because of what happened in San Diego that night. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm just going to suddenly like, if people remember that I'm by, great. If they don't, I understand, right? Like it's it's in my profile uh, bio now at this point. Like I've added it so that it, it is something that is visible. And it is I loved it. And I, it was the, it was what I think I might have given a standing ovation on my couch for that line because it made me laugh. I, I loved it. I wish I had done that first, but you did it, and that's fine. No, I mean, that's fine. I think it's just, like, it's it's that sort of, like, I don't know, just find ways. And it's it's find humanizing ways. Find ways that are, like, it, the, the way that society and progress moves forward is if people understand why it's important that there's differences in the world and why everyone doesn't look and act and think the same. And, and once you're having those conversations, the inroads to those conversations tend to have to come from a place of shared experience for them to really be genuine. It's not necessarily like, let's start meeting each other by saying we're very different. Like, it's just, it's start by this this harmless shit. It's like, oh, you like soccer. I like soccer. I clearly like soccer. Do you read about how much I like soccer? Here are my thoughts on soccer. And then it, it, you go through that and you have that sort of build sort of rapport and then you move into that or it's music or it's food or it's whatever you would want to be. But there are these temple parts of the human experience that all of us have, regardless of like how, where you grew up, what your status is, uh, what job you hold, whether or not you want a career, anything like that. Like you, you start at the basics and that's where you really humanize it. It's the kind of stuff that like Anthony Bourdain was doing with his travels. You know, it was, it was the food component where you find the similarities and that's where you humanize each other and you empathize with each other. And that's something I'm huge on is empathy. I don't like stoicism. I don't like the idea of not having emotion. I don't like the idea of like just completely robbing yourself of experiencing things to the fullest just because it's more convenient for you to to act blasé about it. I think that that sort of that sort of just like stock neutral all the time is exhausting and it's boring and, and frankly you don't you miss a lot by not letting yourself feel more. So that's another part of it too, I guess, where it's just like if you feel that, if you have that empathy, like it's just going to be a more fulfilled day-to-day -day, much less wholesale sort of life experience and that's why i like sports because sports fandom and watching sports is 100 percent emotion over logic if we were using logic sports wouldn't exist sports fandom wouldn't exist it is completely and totally illogical why the hell do i still root for the jaguars despite the fact that they're one of the worst run franchises ever there's right. no logic in that you know and and for some people i mean like in the Minnesota United example, I remember watching that first game at TCF Bank Stadium and watching them get the, their brains beaten out. And mm -hmm. people were like, what the hell's the logic in following this? Well, the right. logic is there is no logic. It's sports. Sports are emotion. Sports fandom is emotion. There is no other place you get cathartic joy quite like watching your team do well. And then there's and, like... And, and, and yeah. that's part of the covering and the joy of covering it, right? Like Yeah, and, and I think then you also have to kind of point out the... The, the danger of that, which is for, for people who maybe feel that they're stunted or not heard or that they're not being able to have these sorts of like cathartic moments on their day to day. That's where you see the unhealthy side of it, where it's like my team lost. So I'm going to go damage stuff around my city or like I have six oh, I days in Philadelphia. Week. I apologize. That actually does happen, though. So no, for sure it does. But like for six or for six days a week, I'm going to go about my job and I'm going to live in you know this family unit whatever and on Sundays I just pour it all out and it's all about the boys on the field or whatever representing my team on the gridiron and then suddenly I have to like flip the switch and suddenly my emotions are gone and it's just like that sort of like that that's just not healthy there is a point where you can pour too much 
into it. But that just usually means that you're not pouring enough into other areas of your life, at least in my experience. That's why I root for five teams, and that's why I got into broadcast. There you go. <laughs> One more thing before we get to the Colin Martin story, and I, I think just for you being a bisexual man married to a bisexual woman, it's such a it's such a great thing because it seems like it's a thing that one day maybe I will have, and it's so it's something that is so important for people to see, you know, because they just don't see again. Maybe they see a bisexual man in a gay relationship. Maybe they see me openly bisexual, but not really wanting a relationship at all because I need a job first and money. Or then they see you, bisexual man married to another bisexual person, a bisexual woman. It's the, it's the experiences of showing, from your perspective, just how different and varied being bisexual really is. Because, I mean, in the future, who knows, hopefully not, I hope you have a great marriage, of course, but you could date a guy in the future. And I've had people ask me, like, who are you going to be dating in the future? I said, why the hell are you asking me that question? How the hell do I know? Right. I, have no, I have no idea what's going to happen in the future, and I'm saying be prepared for both. But I don't know, because my brain, the way it operates, will change for that day-to-day. You know, one day, it could, and, and, that, and that part of your brain that is attracted to men does not go away. It doesn't turn off. It's there, and it, it will, it'll manifest itself in different ways. So for you, showing that experience, I think, is really important to give people just a better understanding of what being bisexual actually means. Right, and, and to, I will also say, too, I mean, like, my wife and I, we met on OkCupid, and at the time, she wasn't listed as bi, and I don't remember if I was or not. I, I don't remember if it was... It, now it's to the point where if you use OKC, my understanding is that it's like one of the first questions you answer is you set up a profile. But I think back then it was kind of hazy. Um, and she wasn't really out to many people, if anybody. And I think it just kind of came up on our first date. And I said I was. And she said, OK, I am too. And that it was one of the first people that she ever told that. And so like it's it's not that we necessarily connected because we were, right? Like It's not like we were hunting for other bisexual folks so that we could have some sort of bi empire or whatever in our house. It was much oh, more just like, great. I like the sound of that. I know. I know it, like it, it's, it's utopic, but like it, it, it was like so much more again, organic like that. And, and I think that there's, there's a sense of that moment in itself at Sporty's dive bar and grill, which is now defunct rest in peace Sporty's where we had our first date. Like that moment isn't like, I don't know, like that, that that's something that validates in a whole separate way where it's not that you were out looking for somebody else who had the same sort of orientation as you, but you found them and you found somebody you connected with and they happened to be as well. And that just means like, oh yeah, there's so many more people out there who are bisexual or pan or a multitude of different orientations that maybe aren't necessarily represented terribly frequently in society or in whatever occupation you have but they're there they really are we are there it is definitely why i like doing this show because i can talk with people who you know bisexual man talked to one of them hockey player in england who dated a woman now dating a guy came out and you can see his story and a bunch of others and that's why this podcast is so great so now we've been dancing around this topic a little bit at the start of the show. Let's talk about it in full, and it's what happened in the USL Championship now about a week ago with Colin Martin, openly gay player, had a gay slur directed at him by a Phoenix Rising player. There's a lot of background to this, and I'm going to let Jeff set this up for those people who don't know the story all that much yet because it, there is a lot of complexity to it. So, Jeff, give people an overview of the story if they haven't heard it about it yet. Sure. So on Wednesday, last Wednesday, which is the final day of September, I think, um, San Diego Loyal was playing against Phoenix Rising in a USL soccer match, second division of men's soccer in the U.S. 
San Diego was setting up for a free kick. There was a little bit of uh, just kind of standard like banter back and forth or so it appeared on the ESPN plus stream between the two teams. Uh, San Diego scores a free kick, really good shot. That's going to be completely forgotten uh, in the history of this team. And uh, they run back for a restart. And all of a sudden, about 30 seconds into play resuming after that goal, the referee stops play, runs up to Colin Martin, midfielder for San Diego, and shows him a red card. Uh, teammates are shocked by this, seem to be kind of surrounding the ref with a little more urgency than you see from a pretty standard practice already of teammates trying to defend a player uh, after getting sent off. Colin Martin goes to the fourth official, and you can hear it on the TV broadcast that he says he's been called a homophobic slur by one of his opponents. That opponent is Junior Flemings, who is the leading scorer of the USL this year, uh, much less for Phoenix Rising as well. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of a discussion, we'll say on the field, Landon Donovan, the head coach of San Diego, former U S men's national team legend, um, runs onto the field is talking to the referee ends up getting shown a red card for running onto the field, which is just standard protocol in soccer. Um, but they're, they're talking about how unacceptable it is that junior Flemings used a homophobic slur. And at this point, it's just, it's in the kind of nebulous stage of allegation because everything hasn't been fleshed out yet. Uh, the referee kind of went back and forth saying that he heard it or he didn't hear it or he heard it and he didn't understand it. Uh, he said pretty much every single thing that was picked up uh, by the airwaves. And, and ultimately kind of the, the, the big boiling point of it is as the coaches, both Landon Donovan and Rick Shantz, the head coach of Phoenix, are talking with the officials after the whistle blows for halftime. And they're discussing the whole circumstance. The referee is, again, kind of going back and forth. It's uncertain if they heard it or if they misunderstood it or if they didn't hear anything. Um, and uh, as they're talking about it, Landon Donovan is saying, you know, we one of your players called our uh, player who is gay a homophobic slur. There's no place for this in soccer. And, and Rick Shantz responds by saying, they're competing. How long have you been in soccer trying to just brush it aside as locker room talker boys will be boys um the game san diego does not finish the game the usl has awarded three points to phoenix rising who were down 3-1 at the time and again the game was disbanded because one of their players used uh, a homophobic slur uh on tuesday october 6th the usl finally ended its investigation by saying that yes junior flemings did use this slur he will be suspended for the postseason his contract ends on november 30th Frankly, it's pretty unlikely that that guy will ever play another USL game, uh, and he does have interest elsewhere. So I think that's probably about the three-minute summary that I could give of what happened in San Diego that night. And there is even more to this, because San Diego, a week prior, had were playing LA Galaxy 2. That's the Galaxy's reserve team. And a Galaxy 2 player called a San Diego loyal player a racist slur at that game, too. And so... Right. They were, I, I don't remember exactly, like, they think it went in as a 1-1 result or there was a forfeit. Like, the, the plan was that in the 71st minute, they, they were going to take a knee saying, we, we don't stand for this race, you know, racial slurs. And they have to, and we don't even get there because they walk off the field because Colin Martin was, had a homophobic slur directed at him. And San Diego also, by the way, they were trying to make the playoffs and giving up that result eliminated their chances of making the postseason. They're an expansion team this year. So that adds another level of just crazy to this. And I've and we've seen, you know, teams walk off. You know, we've seen things like this happen. We've seen racial slurs directed at players. And then Italy, the player who got the racial slur directed at him got a red card. That was insane. But I've never seen a, a team say, we're not playing anymore 
we're packing up our stuff and going home after something like this. It was it's it's unprecedented, really. It is, yeah. And, and usually, when a player does have a verbal assault and they're trying to walk off the field, they're really kind of pointing at examples of this happening in Italy in recent years, where their teammates will rush to try to keep them on the field to keep playing the game, or after the game, say. Um, you know, I, I didn't hear it, so I, I, I hope that the, my teammate didn't overreact to something that was missing. You know, just trying to kind of defend um, this this sort of weird sanctity of the sport that people try to hold in their minds as if it's this kind of uh, ideal, utopic place completely separate from the society that we live in, trying to pretend that there isn't racism in soccer, uh, trying to pretend that there isn't homophobia in the sport, you know, because it's the world's game. It's multicultural. It, rep it represents so many different countries, so many different uh, identities that people try to think that, oh, there's no chance that there are bigots and people filled with hate within this game when obviously that's just not true. Um, there is an education portion of this that needs to be done. And like I'd said earlier, Colin Martin is really big on the education. Um, I personally am also big on education, but I'm not a soccer player. Uh, but I, I think that there's also an accountability. The fact that Phoenix Rising did everything they could before the investigation even started to unilaterally, from the ownership level, from the club level, from the coach level, from the player level, deny that Junior Fleming said this, when again, no investigation had been done. The fact that they doubled down on this, the fact that they tried to throw out subtle accusations that San Diego might have just been trying to do this to get a little bit more of a spotlight um, on them standing up for what was right the week before, like you said, with the racial abuse okay, incident. Can I, can I interrupt? Uh, I apologize. But like, and it occurred to me when I first heard this story, I'm like, if an openly LGBTQ play, uh, person, not necessarily a soccer player, is saying, I had a gay slur directed at me, I think you'd best believe them. They're not going to lie about it. If a black person says, this person called me the N-word, you're going to believe them. It, 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 that was just ridiculous. And it made the situation 10,000 times more worse than it needed to be. That's not the way you should say it, but whatever. Because no, that angered me more than hearing the homophobic slur, period. Yeah, I think that, I mean, like, it, it sucks because we hear the slurs, right, in our in our day-to-day, -day, in sports. But I think it was just the, the part that I, I don't think I'll ever forget or the part that maybe sticks with me and hit me the hardest that night on Wednesday uh, was Rick Shantz's just blind defense of saying, you know, it's it's just competing. Like, players say— And Landon say, Donovan's reaction to it. Like, are you freaking kidding me, dude? Like, this is right. one of the most— celebrated people in u.s soccer he's just starting out as a coach and his look is like I, I i literally can't believe you just said that he that is that is something that will stick with me too seeing the footage afterwards just like landed donovan i've never seen landed donovan look like that on the pitch and this is a dude that scored two goals against mexico in a world cup round of 16 game and has done insane things i've never seen him look like that before on a pitch right and I think the other thing that's interesting about this, and, and we'll talk about it just from this perspective, and, and Landon Donovan, if there's anybody who is going to lead the way on this, it might have been him, and I was thinking about this after, you know, kind of continuing to understand what was going on. Landon Donovan played with Robbie Rogers. He was captain, I think, when Robbie came back to play for the Galaxy after he came out. And I remember this story, and I'm probably getting it wrong, but it's something like this. Like, there was a, a, something on the, one of the boards in the locker room. It was like, girlfriend's night or something. And then Landon Donovan or somebody added, like, boyfriend's night or something like that, right? So if anybody's capable or understands the experience of an opening gay player, it was probably Landon Donovan. And it's interesting how he's taken the lead and been so out front about this. He's on Good Morning America talking about it. You know, I, I think that if, the, if this was going to happen to anybody, sadly, like, the best coach to deal with it might have actually been Landon Donovan, oddly enough. Well, if it's not the best coach, right, like, because – 
well, frankly, the best, the, be the best coach, to be clear, the best coach to do this is the coach who is on the field in the game that it happens. I don't care if it's Landon Donovan. I don't care if it's Michael and Cian in Tulsa. I don't care if it's Mark Lowry in El Paso. I don't care if it's Neil Collins in Tampa. You need, you just need people to take this. You shouldn't need to have a gay best friend to feel offended that there's a homophobic slur in a game. You shouldn't need to have a gay player on your team to justify this sort of a reaction. You shouldn't need to know anybody in your life who is part of the queer community. This second nature. This is something that soccer coaches, as they're trying to build their teams, as they're trying to build identities, as they're trying to build the, these cultures, all of these words that coaches use to try to encapsulate this sort of feeling of unity, of family, of uh, standing next to each other for what's right, for winning, for moving forward, and for soccer clubs in particular who try to be these sort of community pillars within the cities that they're in. You shouldn't need any of that backstory. I completely agree with you, Matt, that it is important, but it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to have that sort of a backstory to justify what Landon Donovan did and how he reacted. Yes, it's probably more poignant, not just because of that history, but because of the fact that he is the most globally prominent person in a coaching role within the United Soccer League right now. It, it does help that he is one of the few undeniable legends of the sport from the United States on the men's side of the game. But this is something that should be second nature for everybody who holds that kind of a role, who has to be that sort of a leadership figure, not just in the soccer field, but in that kind of hierarchy of society. Uh, if you're just looking at kind of a managerial role, you want to be able to look up and know that someone has your back. And in that moment, Rick Chance showed that he probably doesn't have the best interests of his players in mind and that he's just putting the result ahead of the ethics of the game. And that's something that's incredibly troubling. It is annoying because it's not like Phoenix Rising needed it. They were going to win their group anyway. And even without their coach and their player, they ended up winning on Saturday something like 4-1. So it's like prioritizing the result ended up being really, really stupid. And, of course, was going to be stupid anyway. Uh, in terms of what USL is doing next, they were already thinking about an educational program of some kind about, you know, the language issue. And I know you know more about this than I do. Uh, and it certainly ended up getting sped up a bit because of this incident. So talk a little about what USL is planning on doing now that this has happened and now that they their investigation concluded and, and Flemings is suspended for the postseason. Well, they'd already had a, a partnership lined up with the Institute for Society and Social Change uh, to do some, I mean, sensitivity training for players, coaches, and owners across the league. That was something that was already in the works, as you said. They're, they're looking to ramp up the suspensions that they give for hate speech because they it wasn't just these two instances involving San Diego last year. There was also a player who used a racial slur on the field. All three players only got six game suspensions for the hate speech. And that was something that across the board has been seen as insufficient. FIFA, for just an example, FIFA suggests that it leagues give at minimum 10 game bans for hate speech on the field, regardless of what genre of hate speech it is. Um, so that is something where the USL is going to need to, to kind of step up. Um, I mean, the fact that they gave three points to Phoenix is in itself pretty inexcusable for the league. I mean, they played 45 minutes and then one team walked off because, again, they were targeted with a homophobic slur. Uh, the fact that Phoenix were rewarded for with three points for that and that the league didn't just completely nullify the result, I understand that you can't honor what was played halfway through, which would have been a 3-1 win for San Diego. I completely understand that you can't just award that. But acting like that game happened or acting like the, the reason the game didn't happen wasn't because of something 
just really cynical and really sick that Phoenix did on the field or one of its players did on the field um, and still giving them three points for it. Frankly, that's a failure on the USL's part as well. Um, but yeah, I think at this offseason, this is going to be one of the major questions for the league as it enters its 11th season in 2021 is how do you, one, nullify this, two, stand up for these kind of ideals that the USL has tried to position itself as not being afraid of being uh, of allowing its players, its coaches, its clubs to make quote-unquote political statements, of being able to be um, more open and less worried about the optics of it and saying, hey, you need to step up in your community. You need to read the tea leaves of what people need. You need to read the room and be able to be leaders in your cities. And they're failing at it. And this instance in itself just shows that a lot of what they're doing, a lot of what they're saying, frankly, is lip service, and it isn't really trying to move it forward as mustard as is just trying to keep it relevant in a news cycle. And that's going to be something that they really need to wrestle with as they're moving forward as a lower division league. Or as previous podcast guests would call it, pink washing. I mean, it, I mean I've heard that before and I, I kind of understand that. But the USL, the championship, it's a, it's a weird league because you've got a mixture of MLS reserve teams and these clubs in these medium-sized cities, it's, it's an odd league in that regard. So it's got a lot of mouths to feed. So I don't envy the task of Jake Edwards, who's the uh, USL president, or is it commissioner? I don't remember what the title is. I president, don't envy yeah. President, okay. I don't envy his task. I mean, it's a task that has to be done, but it's a difficult task. Because, I mean, this year they have 35 teams in the league. Next year, yeah. they, who knows But I'll tell you what, teams. Matt. If, if, if that seems unenviable or that seems something that's really difficult to do, then don't grow your league to 35 teams. This is something that they've taken on themselves. This isn't an excuse for them. This no, is something not, that they've said they can manage. No, but I'm serious. I mean, like, this isn't something where you can say you have 35 owners that you're trying to keep happy, including these MLS reserves team. Therefore, we have to try to keep about a, as neutral of, like, a polarity to this in terms of maybe your pH balance or however you want to view this on that scale. No, you, you can't use that as a justification because that is something of your own creation. You need to work against that to show that it isn't going to handcuff what you're able to do as a league. That's on the USL. Absolutely true. Uh, so what, do you, what would you like them to do? And what would you like to see happen when we get to the start of next season? I, I think that it's it's too soon to say. I think that this moment is too raw, too recent to really know. I think that, yes, it is a very good step that was co-opted by uh, the U.S. Players Association um, and the Black Players Alliance of the USL in making sure that they chose not just a sensitivity training program, but one that they felt was adequate and actually would improve uh, kind of the quality uh, of the USL as an operation. Um, so that is good. I do I do applaud them for that. Um, I, I think that the suspension side, they really need to get that down because right now, I, I mean, look, Phoenix, they'll, they'll lose their top score for the playoffs, but they got three points. They were able to secure home field advantage over two more teams as this playoff continues. They jumped up the standings from fourth to second because of this result. Um, and they're such a good team that they'll be able to make up for Flemings anyway. Like the, this... Yes, losing the leading scorer of the league is hard, but this is by no means a punishment that's really going to hurt Phoenix or really discourage any team or any player from doing this again unless they change the the punishment procedure. But I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not interested in punishments, Matt. I'm not interested in um, does it fit the crime, anything like that. Like, it's accountability. It's about making sure that you don't have to spend an entire week on an investigation when you have a gay player who is giving publicly the full account 
of what happened and taking that at face value. It's about not just letting it linger for six, seven days about what the future will be for Junior Flemings or for Rick Shantz or for Phoenix Rising. Um, you need to find a way to make sure that your workforce is more accountable and is holding itself to a higher standard because right now that standard is non-existent. If this is your case study or if the LA Galaxy 2 player using a racial slur is your case study, it's not there. There just isn't one and they need to establish one. And that's something that's going to take time. It's something that's going to take work. It's something that's not going to be palpable for everybody in the operation, but it's something that's mandatory at this point. Well, it's interesting how we're talking about, like, the punishments. I've seen people say the team where this happens, like, in the case of Phoenix, they should be the one forfeiting the game. Like, like bans, like, points deductions, you know, playing games behind closed doors when fans are allowed back. I, I think you're right, though. Like, punishment's not going to make anybody not do it. It's about, it's about education. I think Colin Martin's trying to take the high road as much as he can in this situation. And I, I don't envy him because it's not like he wants to be in this position where he's the only openly gay player in U.S. men's soccer. And, like, he, he's gone out on a limb already, and now he has to go out on a limb again. I don't envy that. And from his perspective and talking to him and knowing to him, you talked about the educational aspect of it and how important it is for him. But what does – because I'm thinking – because there are other players in USL or in U.S. soccer that are going to come out at some point. So what, where are we going with that? Because like what Colin Martin's doing, obviously, to stand up and say this happened and I'm, t- I'm going to do everything I can to help educate to make sure it doesn't happen again. But like there, there's a whole other story to this of like what comes after. And it's about the education so that we don't really have to see an openly gay player have a homophobic slur directed at him again. Right. But I think then, I mean, that's a question of how much of that does a league control um, – because it goes beyond the USL. This is something where Colin Martin isn't just the only openly gay player in the USL or the only openly gay player in men's soccer in the US. He's the only openly gay active player in any major men's team sport in the country. Like, it's it's not just a case of how do you get the USL in a better spot? It's how do you move sports past, I mean, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like this, you know, like it's it's locker room stuff or it's it, like sports, is, it tends to trend pretty hetero if you're in men's sports. Like you need to move past that being the expectation or the benchmark that you're trying to work against and you need to move to a completely different way of looking at it. I mean, the, the MLB has somebody named Billy Bean who is specifically in his role trying to find ways to make the sport more inclusive for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and that's Major League Baseball. That's the national pastime. That's not a second division soccer league in its 10th year of existence. Like, this is something that isn't going to go away. This isn't something that's just going to be fixed in an offseason. This isn't something where 2021 is going to be this magical season where everything makes sense. Uh, it's going to take time. It's going to take, uh, unfortunately, generations. And, I mean, it, it's a lot to ask of the the Colin Martins or the other people in the, the sports world and every facet of it to try to make it more visible and more inclusive um, or normalize maybe the fact that it's not just going to be straight people playing men's sports. Um, but that's going to take time. And, and I think that maybe you look at women's sports, maybe you look at the fact that um, issues of homophobia aren't nearly as prevalent in the WNBA and the NWSL, and you ask why is that, and and don't just make callous assumptions about okay, well, 
uh, more of their player pool is, so there's no way they could. But no, really dig deeper. Why is that? Why do they function so much better in terms of inclusivity of the queer community than men's sports do? And what can you learn from that and carry over to make it a more level playing field, so to speak, and make people feel more comfortable being themselves when they're in these sorts of roles. Do you think this is something that U.S. soccer should take up as we wrap this up? Like, this is something that U.S. soccer and federations can take up, you know, because FIFA's not going to do anything. They can say whatever the hell they want, but they're not going to do anything. The leagues are going to have their trouble doing it anyway. Shouldn't this be something that the national FAs try to deal with? They, they can, sure, but, I mean, one, everyone should. Like, it's not just on them. Two, uh, there's a lot of stuff that U.S. soccer will say that people just kind of blow past, or there's a lot of credibility that has been lost in the federational level over the last, I would say, five or six years. This isn't just related to the men uh, failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. This is about uh, coaching appointments and nepotism and the, the overly straight white man hierarchy of the Federation. This goes into questions about equal pay for the women and how ugly this lawsuit is. Some of the language that the previous president, Carlos Cordero, put in as a justification for the U.S. women's national team earning less money by saying that women can't play at a level that men can. That's less than a year ago. That's not like rhetoric that you're still fighting against from the 60s. That's 2020. Like you need to find ways. If I'm being honest, I don't think people trust US soccer enough for them to do something that's truly going to make the, the sport in this country listen. This is something that needs to happen at the grassroots level. This is something that needs to happen at the club level, at the league's level, for it to truly be impactful. Because if they all just defer to the federation, I think that they're going to be very disappointed at the end of the day. You're probably right about that. There we go. We got US soccer uh, federation talk in this podcast. Didn't think that was going to happen. Anyway. You're right about all this is complex issue, and there's a lot more to come with this. And uh, people could follow you uh, writing stories about this, and I know you're going to, and I'm excited about that. Jeff, where can people find your work again? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Reuter, R-U-E-T-E-R, and then you can find everything I do over at The Athletic. Right now, we're new subscribers. Sign on for a dollar a month. No better time to join. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on, talking about yourself, and talking about pretty um, – uh, it's been a tough week in many ways, but thank you for making us smarter, learning about that and where we're going. Thank you again, Jeff, for coming on. Of course, man. Keep up the good work.